today on EdgeFX. They essentially made the food that they produced for their children at home. And not because they liked it particularly, but because they couldn't afford anything else and their body from the wear and tear of work wouldn't let them prepare much else. Historian Nan Instad speaks with Bryant Simon, author of the new book, The Hamlet Fire, a tragic story of cheap food, cheap government, and cheap lives. They discuss the events surrounding the catastrophic factory fire in Hamlet, North Carolina in 1991, a fire that was the result of many levels of neglect, but which can tell us quite a bit about the effects of deregulation and reindustrialization in small towns across the U.S. What emerges from their conversation is a fuller picture of the lives of industrial factory workers affected by the fire and the national political and economic forces that made their lives and the products of their labor so cheaply valued. Bryant, thanks so much for joining us on EdgeFX today. Thanks for having me. We're really excited to have you on the show. It's wonderful to get to talk about your book. I actually remember the fire that you're talking about. I was in graduate school at the time in 1991, and um, I remember there was a lot of press about it at the time and a lot of commentary from the, at least from labor unions and stuff. And I, I wonder if you could just kind of tell us that bare bones story since many of our listeners are not going to be as aged as I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember it as well. I was in graduate school at the same time, so I think we're on the same page. On September 3rd, 1991, the Imperial Food Products Plant in Hamlet, North Carolina exploded. This was a chicken further processing plant. It made chicken tenders, fajitas, and other items in the town of Hamlet, which is an incredibly small town on the North Carolina-South Carolina border about two hours south of Raleigh and two hours east of Charlotte and, and about the same distance from either of the main interstates in the state. What happened that morning was the product of a long process of the degradation of working conditions and of working people's lives and security in that plant. But the specific circumstances were there was a hydraulic hose that was used to open and close a part in a gigantic fryer that fried up the chicken tenders. And it was fixed with the wrong parts because the owners of the plant, Emmett and Brad Rowe, had balked at buying the right parts. And um, when it was turned on, it spewed hydraulic fluid all over the place, including under the flames that were heating the fryer. And an explosion happened, an explosion so intense that it would eventually rip a hole in the ceiling. For workers in the front of the plant, they were okay. They ran out the front door, but for workers in the back of the plant, and the workers were largely women, many of them African-American and many of them single mothers, they ran to the back and found the doors locked in the back of the plant. Um, in one case, one of the doors was double locked and latched from the outside, and that door only opened to the inside. So workers who kicked at it frantically you know, obviously didn't know that they, they couldn't get it to open. Eventually, 25 people died that morning, another 50 or so survived, and it left just about as many children orphaned. That's the bare bones version yeah. of the story. It's, a, it's such a dramatic story. One of the things that I am really amazed at with your book is how broadly you tell the story. So this is, a, it's a story of labor, it's a story of food, 
and the food industry. It's a story of politics and deregulation and the dismantling of the New Deal. It's a story of race and the changing geographies of you know, of small towns. That is one of the really powerful things about the book to me. And all of those different themes you pull together through this idea of cheap. And I wondered if you could talk about this notion of cheap that you develop in the book and what you mean by it, how you came to it. Yeah, I write and think about books as finding stories that I'm interested in. And it's not that I don't have any kind of theory in my head or ideas about what I want to do, but I then try and figure out what they were about and what meaning they had. And so as I kind of jumped into the story, my actually entry point was the food that they made, which were chicken tenders and fajitas. And I really started to think about what the relationship between the food produced there and the fire was. And I kept coming back to how inexpensive the food was, how inexpensive in some ways government was made to be, and how little the town and the people who worked there were valued by others. And I felt like the thing that I could pull this together was around the idea of cheap. And thinking about that was also a way to think about what fundamental transformations were happening in the United States at the time and how this event was in the flow of that history. And Hamlet lent itself to that in some ways because it was kind of the perfect, I don't really use this term a ton in the book, but it was kind of the perfect Fordist term. And I don't want to push that too much, but was a kind of place where white men and to a certain extent African-American men had good union jobs working on the railroads. And they were emblematic of that kind of arrangement at the time that if people were well paid, they would spend a lot of money, right? You know, the kind of Henry Ford idea, he pays workers enough so that they would buy Model Ts. And what I was struck by was how different this model was. And in a sense, it was a different social bargain that said, look, we're not, we're going to underpay you. We're not going to regulate your lives very much, but will give you cheap goods in order to survive. And I was kind of constantly amazed when I talked to some of the survivors. So they told me that when they got off of work, they essentially made the food that they produced for their children yeah, at home. Yeah. Yep. And not because they liked it particularly, but because they couldn't afford anything else and their bodies from the wear and tear of work wouldn't let them prepare much else. And they became right. really actually dependent on the microwave to kind of feed their families. So I just kept coming back to this kind of idea of cheap, that this was, in essence, what we were being offered. And I heard this in the sources as early as Jimmy Carter saying, you know, we got to cut regulation because people want cheaper goods. And, and, you know, one of the pivots here is inflation. That inflation in the early 1970s, one of the things I was really impressed with, you know, I think historians, I'll, I'll be intrigued if it's something they pick up, is how quickly both Democrats and Republicans move away from a New Deal way of thinking mm -hmm, to this mm -hmm. idea of cheap. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's the rapidity of that. Literally, in Carter's, like halfway through his term, he abandons his kind of relationship to the New Deal and great society. Yeah. Faced with inflation, just keeps pushing this idea that they can't afford it and you've got to get things cheaper in the end. And so I was using that both for kind of describe the food and the government and the kind of lives, but a kind of larger kind of social bargain that was happening right. that particularly enveloped the lives of the working poor in America during this period. Yeah, well, it's an, it's an incredibly 
fascinating portrait and just what you just did in your comment you also do in the book which is so compelling is you you go from the level of like the bodies of these workers what they're eating what they're consuming they're using the microwave to prepare these quick meals that they don't have they don't have the money to buy something more expensive they don't have the time to prepare something more complicated and you go from that to this big level of political deregulation and the big you know concept of the economy and that level from bodies uh, that matter <laughs> to the level of global economy. That's a, it's very graceful. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah. And also really love, you know, you just said that these people in Hamlet were in the flow of history and that comes through in the book. So compellingly, I'm like, I need to know about these people in this little town that has almost no people in it. I need to know this, you know, <laughs> and, and this is a, this is a history that's often like, I think people here would, more often be seen as in the backwater of history. Right. And yeah, in the in the course of the book, it's like, no, this is the this is the flow of history. So that's really fascinating. I, I want to come back to the idea of cheap a little in a little bit, you know, because I think sure. there's we could spend the whole time on that. There's a couple things more that I want to ask you, but but I first want to just kind of ask you, because I think people will be super interested in this and kind of what drew you to this topic, because I know that the book that you wrote before this is about Starbucks, Everything right. But the Coffee, another really great book about food industry and capitalism and supplies and, you know, workers, producers, consumers, and but a really different one. You know, Starbucks had you hanging out in, in Starbucks and trying to figure out why people bought these triple venti right. lattes. And, and this is such a different experience. I'm kind of wondering, you know, if you could explain how did you get to this this topic? Well, I mean, there's probably two ways. And one is, since you brought it up, the Starbucks book was a kind of frustrating book to write. Much of what I liked about writing history, and my friends will know this, I'm not a very calm person, was I liked being in the archives. The fact that that book was not archival was frustrating to me. And so I wanted to write something that was kind of archival. I was interested in writing about the South. I'd written my first book about the South. But really, what happened was, you know, I lived in North Carolina when the fire happened. The coverage at the time was really amazing by the Raleigh News and Observer and the Charlotte Observer. I mean, so amazing that the story stuck with me. And years later, I'd finished the Starbucks book and I was kind of talking to one of my graduate students about what he might want to write about. And as we were talking, I recalled the Hamlet story for him and realized that this was a story that I wanted to write about, that it was, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it had a lot of the things that I felt like I was interested in that sense of place that would allow for a kind of narrative and engagement that I was interested in writing at that time with some detail and some interviewing. And again, it was my own work had sort of moved in the direction of food studies. And I was really interested, you know, I had written about kind of luxury items and I wanted to write about kind of cheap items and think about the cost of both of those in a kind of conversation. Uh-huh. Cool. Great. Thank you. I, I couldn't quite believe the small town was the birthplace of Tom Wicker, the, the great New York Times journalist, and John Coltrane, who were both born there in 1926. And that little tidbit, um, it, it didn't actually end up becoming any part of the book, but it was something that kind of fascinating about the place from, from even before I started working on the book. Yeah. I was thinking that John Coltrane might be the link that connects the two books, because I, I think it was in your book, or else I just remember this from actually going that the that Starbucks was 
Don't you talk about how they were packaging the Jazz Masters? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, so there's the <laughs> there's the link. Them. Yeah, besides food industry, John Coltrane is uh, carrying us through the history of capitalism here. <laughs> well, another question I wanted to ask you about that's pretty fundamental to the book is this concept of silence. Right. Uh, and you say in the book that there was a kind of an effort to produce silence or in a phrase that I think is really interesting that they processed silence kind of like they processed chicken at this factory. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that concept and also what kinds of speaking and writing becomes important to do in the face of this processed silence. Yeah. I mean, one of the arguments um, that I think is important about the book and what speaks to this current moment is I think that, that the system of cheap overproduces silences and represses knowledge, right? It, it has a kind of truthiness to it, to borrow the Stephen Colbert phrase. And that means it represses how our food is produced. It makes workers invisible. It forces, in some cases, workers to enforce their own silence rather than protest kind of vocally to employers for fear of losing their jobs. And in fact, the owners of the factory cultivate this they know that if they can sort of hide their operations, that gives them the kind of shield to operate in the dark or in, in silence that they want to. So again and again, we see how forgetting is important to the system of cheap. And its most important kind of production of silence is to make it hard to see an alternative to it. Who doesn't want to bargain, right? I mean, it's such a kind of embedded in the logic of how we think about things that we find it really difficult to find the actual cost of the, the things that we buy. And that, I think, is essential to this system. And, and perhaps what makes it historically kind of unique, it has some echoes of the Gilded Age, but the level of this kind of producing silence, I think, is unprecedented. And I think deregulation itself is a form of silence, right? I mean, it's to kind of create kinds of silences, to hide conditions in factories, I've noticed in, in these kind of industrial disasters in the last 20 years, they happen. We wring our hands about them and we quickly go back to kind of forgetting the causes of them. And, and so part of writing the book is hopefully, you know, in the kind of biggest sense is to break this kind of cycle of silence and forgetting. Yeah, it's, a, it's interesting. You talk in there about how the uh, owners, Emmett and Brad Rowe, didn't even apply for many of the required permits and were yeah. sort of off the grid in a way in the factory. Could you tell a couple of those tidbits? <laughs> yes. Under North Carolina state law, like most state laws, if you have a factory over 11 people, you have to um, register, get a business license with the state. And then that sort of puts you into the OSHA inspection pool. Apparently they never filled that out, but I mean, even more, they didn't have a sign over the door. One of the great stories is the head of the local chamber of commerce recalled going over and knocking on the door and introducing himself to Emmett Rowe when he bought the factory. And Emmett Rowe slammed the door in his face and the chamber of commerce representative said, I felt like I was sort of a union representative. Like, There's a lot there. Yeah, <laughs> a lot in that statement. Door, right? They, they even are hiding wells that they're extracting water secretly from the city. They're an extreme version of it in this case, but they really work hard to not be seen in this town. 
Yeah. So there's a story of deregulation, but then there's just a story of unregulated too. That makes me think of sweatshops, you know, because they're just not even kind of on the map for a lot of re- regulation that might have, maybe would have occurred. Yeah. <laughs> you I, know? I, don't know much, I don't know how much it would have mattered, right? Yeah. It, I mean, and that's part of the point of the book is that not only is this a story about deregulation, it's about the laws on the books not even being enforced. And uh-huh. the story, I think, is slightly more nuanced than that. And I think it's worth thinking about. So the imperial plan had been there for 11 years when it blew up and um, it had never been inspected, not by local officials. And that was despite the fact that there had been three fires in the plant, the fire department yeah. never inspected the plant, not by state officials. OSHA never came. And we'll talk about the federal level, but but just OSHA for a second. In 1991, North Carolina had 180,000 workplaces. It had about 32 to 35 factory inspectors. If those people worked every day and inspected one factory a day, five days a week, it still would have taken them between 60 and 70 years to inspect every factory (laughs) in the state. But I think what's really important here is it wasn't like North Carolina wasn't willing to invest in some forms of regulation. It had way more wildlife inspectors. It had people who inspected state parks. So there were some things that they were willing to invest in. And then the other level of oversight that's really interesting is the USDA was in the plant almost every day. And they were supposed to be inspecting the meat. Now, some rancid meat got past them. But one of the crucial stories in the book is that the doors were locked in order to satisfy the USDA, flies were getting in the plant and the USDA threatened to close down the imperial plant and the owners couldn't afford that. They were just in too desperate to straight for that. And they basically come to a deal with the USDA that signs off on the locking of exit doors in the factory. Now, there's one other interesting wrinkle to this, not a deregulatory story, but it's a story about race and about whose lives are valued here. In the wake of the fire, people reported over and over again that the doors were locked because the workers were stealing chickens. And this becomes, in some ways, a justification for locking the doors, right? I mean, several people will write and say, well, of course they locked the doors. You can't trust these people. And, you know, right, there's some racial overtones to that. But despite some reporters breaking the story about the USDA, the story of theft was much longer lasting. And and I find that fascinating, right? And that will actually later affect the way that the local DA will approach the story. Wow. Well, there's a couple things I want to follow up on with that. One, first and seems most important, is race is really central to this book, and you pay attention to it throughout. But you also note that some people were saying, well, this isn't about race. More than half of the people who died were white. Right. Uh, So I wonder how you perceived this as a story about race or centrally about race and valuing of black lives and kind of how you argue that through the book. Right. You know, it is a story about race that kind of adding up of the numbers is a way, you know, one of the many ways in which we want to imagine stories not to be about race in this country. Right. 75, 80 percent of the workers in the plant on the line were, were women I mean, they were all women on the line, but they were African-American. The disproportionate relative to that number of whites who die is that that a lot of the maintenance men were around the explosion at the time of the fire. 
The other thing about how it becomes an issue about race, I mean, this is largely the way the workers were recruited. And I think it was perceived in town as a kind of job that black women did, right? And so there were complicated issues, I think, for some of the white women who worked there of what it meant to work there for them. I would say, furthermore, that it becomes an even more pronounced racial issue in the wake of the fire. There are a number of incidents that heighten the racial tensions around the fire. Um, On the morning of the fire, the call goes out from the Hamlet Fire Department for help, but they don't call the fire department in a nearby town called Dobbins Heights, which was an all-black town with an all-black fire department, despite the fact that they were the closest firefighters to the blaze. And this made people in Hamlet, again, kind of really uneasy about their relationship to local government, how much they were valued and their place in the community. And then the factory itself was on the black side of town. Um, and in 1991, there were still, you know, at least informally black and white sides of town. And that factory wasn't torn down for 10 years. It produced a kind of terror in the black community. I mean, you couldn't go to church, you couldn't go to the store, you couldn't go to the playground without passing this charred and broken building. And I think in one way, there was a certain terror, again, a terror that was elicited by that. But in many ways, African-Americans came to own fire in a way that almost they hadn't before, right? That, that it was their history. It was reflective of a kind of long history of their relationship to the town and, and to kind of economic interest in town and political interest in town. And in some ways, they carried forth, you know, some of the most important memories about the fire. Your book is often really moving, and this is one of the components that I found really moving, that the attention to workers and workers' lives and their experiences of the fire itself, but also the aftermath of the fire. And workers and workers can be kind of abstracted in some food studies or absent. <laughs> um, so that it seems really a powerful element of this, and including that you pay attention to trauma, and you just kind of uh, talked about that with the ruins of the factory itself becoming a source of trauma. Did you do interviews to get at that daily visceral sort of experience that workers were having, or how did you how did you get at that? Well, unfortunately, um, I had my own experience with trauma while I was writing the book. Mm-hmm. My father was run over by a car um, oh. about halfway through writing the book, and my mom... Um, I mean, I think all of us did, but my mom was there um, and saw him. And, and I think she, she has struggled since. And, and it was kind of easy to understand that, you know, she was suffering from PTSD. And so I got kind of in tune to that, actually, because yeah. of that. And, and that led me to kind of track down. Um, there was a pretty, a pretty well-funded PTSD study um, in Hamlet at the time. And um, a Duke UNC group got together and did research on both kids and adults. Um, But the most interesting person I met, and you were asking about interviews, was a doctor who was hired by an insurance company. And he had to kind of continue to document that workers were suffering from PTSD and so that they would continue to receive workers' compensation payments. Uh And he was a really interesting person to work with. He drove back and forth to Hamlet, he estimates, hundreds of times and really helped people kind of through their battles with PTSD. 
he also wow. was able to introduce me to some of workers and, and help me sort of understand the problem and how to talk to workers about it. His name's Stephen Fry. To me, he's one of the few heroes in this book. His, his everyday decency and his commitment to kind of helping people get better and understanding how long it would take for them to get better is, is really heroic. Um, but I could see that people were suffering. The woman I opened the book with, Loretta Goodwin, she, the first time I talked to her, it was just like a, it was a kind of cooler than usual September day in Athens, a really beautiful day. And um, I went to her house, a house that she bought with some settlement money. And the windows were all drawn. And it was as if light had never seen that house. Uh -huh. And as we were talking, she told me a story that just still sticks with me about how she still has trouble sleeping. And she gets mad at the TV, like mad when there isn't a show on because she wants to be able to stay up as long as possible to kind of mm. keep the demons away. And that just was that one little story. It was one of the first interviews I did. And I was like, yeah, this is really interesting. You know, how am I going to explore this? And then later I figured out ways to do it. But um, there were some things I knew I'd write about. And that was something I didn't know I'd write about. And I'm not sure I would have written about it in the same way if I hadn't sort of experienced some of it myself. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm terribly sorry to hear that about your dad. Yeah, um, the empathy that you show really comes through in the book. It's one of the really extraordinary things about this book. So well, you, you've, really, you've really honored your father in that way, I oh, think. Thank you. I, I wanted to add, this is kind of related. You referred to the Dobbins Heights all black town, uh, that their fire department wasn't called to the scene of the fire. And I wanted to ask you about rumor, because I found it really fascinating the way that you treat rumor in this book, <laughs> that the book is, is certainly in search of truth, but you don't always try to resolve whether rumors are true. And I wonder if you would just talk about that maybe in relationship to the Dobbins Heights Fire Department, because that seemed really poignant to me. So as I said before, this is this little volunteer fire department of just recently incorporated town between downtown Hamlet and the main railroad center. And they had a volunteer fire department and they were not called out. And I'd heard this story, you know, I was trying to track it down. I don't know why they weren't called out. But what I do know is for African Americans in town, they were convinced why they weren't called out. And it was because the people who ran that fire department were black. And it spoke to them in the clearest ways that they weren't valued by the city government. And where it struck me was I was watching an interview with a guy by this documentarian who did a short film about Hamlet. And this African-American guy who knew people who died in the fire, he's beginning to explain the fire. And he, and he just stops. And he says, you know, there was a fire department that was never called. And you know why it wasn't mm -hmm. called. And the disconnect from his narrative also mm -hmm. told me how important this was to how African-Americans understood the fire. And, and there's a couple other places where rumor is really important or the way that different people can't agree on the truest story. I didn't really feel like it was my job to resolve that entirely. But I felt the fact that there were these different truths kind of lingering very heavily in the air spoke to this deep racial division that the fire 
didn't expose it was already there it it just brought it to the surface in really fascinating ways Bryant, let's let's take that and go back to cheap for just a minute you know and i think by bringing the personal experiences the understandings these self-understandings of the black community the trauma experiences into a story that's also about national political shifts even global economic shifts you know you make black lives sort of important to how we understand big economic change and it made me think about that slogan black lives matter <laughs> you know which has really been you know really was developed to talk about you know police murder but has kind of an important slogan for your book or for how we think about capitalism in this context. And I wondered if you had ideas about that in terms of, you know, sort of how does this intersect with our political moment in that way? Um, there was no doubt that I was influenced by the protests in Ferguson and calls for Black Lives Matter and, and also into the more facile kind of notions of all lives matter. And mm -hmm. as I was rewriting the book, I made a really conscious decision to explore this idea and to explore the way in which people's lives, working people in particular, but African-Americans are overrepresented amongst the working poor. Their lives have been systematically devalued by the economy and really by political decisions, right? I mean, when you start to use a cost-benefit analysis to think about OSHA, who's, you know, whose lives are jeopardized in that, right? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. I also thought it was an important kind of corrective to labor history, right, that in a lot of ways, right, America doesn't deindustrialize in the 1970s, it reindustrializes on a kind of rural basis, right? And there's a global phenomenon to this. And the face that that reindustrialization wears is often the face of women and often the face of people of color. Yet their sort of stories as labor stories aren't told very often. So those two things were really kind of in my head very deliberately as I was writing the book and particularly in that section at the end of the book. The prosecutor didn't value their lives because they were working people and they were people of color. You know, the town didn't value their lives. They're not willing to spend twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars to tear down the plant. The lawyers didn't value their lives. And you know, I also think that that, you know, psychologically is pretty hard to live with in the face of the kind of tragedy that you have at Hamlet. I mean, it, you, we talked earlier about the streams of history. I think they saw their lives in the streams of history. They saw the tragedy mm -hmm. in the streams of history. And that stream was, you know, this has been going on for a long time. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. You know, one thing that you said in there that I did not know was that even though I lived in North Carolina uh, for eight years, was that North Carolina was the most industrialized yeah. state in 1991. It's crazy, um, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And it's very much rural um, and small town industrialization. That's a particular model, right, that gets repeated globally, right? I didn't want to push this too hard. But the, one of the ways we define globalization is the fluidity of capital, right? But mm -hmm. workers can't move. So what happens is capital goes to trap them in these kind of isolated and vulnerable places. And that's what globalization is, right? And what happened in Hamlet is part of a process of 
capitalism that is really prominent across the United States during this period. And we can think of, you know, those Iowa meatpacking plants that literally are union shops that get closed and get reopened as non-union shops. This mobilization of the kind of countryside for a kind of industrialization we see happening all over the place. And and it also, because wages are pushed down, often in these places you have an expanding pool of labor that makes it even more attractive to business to locate mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're still trying to catch up, right? We have this, a geography of industrialization in our head that doesn't match what's what's going on. I, I have a question. It's, a, it's actually kind of a selfish question. I really just want to know what, what you'd say. Because, <laughs> you know, you create this reality in the book that's that's very satisfying that talks about the politics of cheap and makes an argument against it. I'm now I'm seeing it everywhere I go. So one of the things that I find really irritating and I want an argument about <laughs> is um, uh, the recent purchase of Whole Foods by Amazon. <laughs> right. And I was listening to, I was in the car, I was listening to NPR and just reflexively the announcer said, that of course this is good for consumers. Right. And then they went on and I mean, I've heard the jokes about Whole Foods, uh, you know, being called Whole Paycheck. And one of the first things that Amazon did is release this uh, press release saying we're going to lower or we're going to lower <laughs> Whole Foods prices by Friday, you know, on right. Friday. And so I wonder, like, how do you see this in the context, having done this whole book about the politics of cheap? How do you respond to something like that? Is it really good for consumers that these huge companies are running our food system and how how do we make an argument within that or against that well we know it's not good right and this is a food system that's dangerous to us we can see the evidence all around us it's dangerous to animals and it's full of externalities and give backs to the biggest companies and it's based on a lie right and that lie is the price that they charge things and so one of the crucial things to have this conversation is to try and figure out how we can have an honest calculation of what things cost. I think, you know, in the case of a company like Whole Foods and Organics, right, well, corn is subsidized to such an extent that it artificially lowers the price of some goods. We know that. People have written a lot Mm -hmm. about that. Michael Pollan has written a lot about that. But it artificially makes other things look expensive, right? Like broccoli. And um, so... I think that that's a really important thing to me is to have this more kind of really honest kind of accounting of how much things cost. I mean, I think that some food solutions are probably going to have to come from big food. You know, I don't know that kind of smaller food systems are scalable in such a way that they would allow people the kind of nutrition they need without a really kind of wholesale rethinking of wages and the structure of the economy. I mean, right, these things are so intertwined Mm -hmm. that it's very difficult to think about that. What I don't think and what the answer that drives me crazy is, well, we need, you know, organic chicken. This is not going to get us out of this problem, right, that we feel better about what we eat. And I think what a lot of people are doing is opting out of the the kind of big food system. Mm -hmm. But that's not a solution to the issues of poverty and Mm -hmm. dangerous calories and, and ill nutrition for the poor. And so... To me, these need to be really important parts of the the conversation. We can't have a conversation about poverty in this country without having a conversation about better food supplies, you know, 
decent lunches for kids, recess, investment in rec centers. But we do seem most willing to defend consumers rather than working people. Yeah. You know, the system of cheap relies on its ability to deliver things to consumers while erasing the production of that stuff. And, mm-hmm. and, and so that, I think, has to change. And I love that Mark Bittman idea that he had a while back. I mean, I don't know why it didn't get more press of a tripartite labeling system. One would be like nutritional information. The next would be kind of the footprint of food. And then one would be on labor conditions. Mm, like, yeah. You know, that would end one fiction really quickly. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Cool. Thank you. Okay. So I'm going to be honest with you. Yeah. The semester's just starting. It's a busy time of the semester. Late last week, I sat down with your book. I had about two hours that I was going to dedicate to it. And I've been to graduate school, so I know how to skim a book. And at like past midnight, I was still reading your book. <laughs> I couldn't put it down. And then the same thing happened the next day. I'm like, okay, I got about, I can spend about 15 minutes and finish up the book. And I read the whole thing. I read every word of this book. And oh, thank um, you. I, I guess I want to talk about the writing. You know, you tell us the basic story of what happened in the first 12 pages. Right. The rest of the book is figuring out how it happened. And and I wonder, how do you create that sense of urgency and drama and forward momentum in the book? I wonder if you can can talk about that. Well, thanks first for taking the time. I mean, and, and that's gratifying to me because I actually never really learned to skim very well in graduate school. So <laughs> I kind of read most pages. Maybe, you know, I wanted to write a book that would warrant that attention. You know, part of it was a strategic decision and part of it was benefiting from what was already produced, right? I did at first think I was going to kind of write a blow by blow with a fire and a kind of chronological, really narrative driven history. And um, I felt like that had already been done by the newspapers, that I would Mm. be redoing some of this kind of amazing coverage that the newspapers had done. And it wouldn't get at what I really wanted to get at. And so I, I played around a lot with it. And I was really influenced by Eric Klinenberg's book on the Chicago Fire, which is a book I really love. And he uses this term mm-hmm. social autopsy to describe mm-hmm. what he's doing. And and so I kind of had that in the back of my head that what I was going to write is sort of a historical social autopsy, that I was going to go through the causes of the fire. And then, and then the book began to organize itself to me really around the kind of themes of government. Well, really about town. I mean, if town and the transformation of the town, the transformation of government, the transformation of food and the lives of workers. And I had then to figure out how to do it. And I began to see it as kind of chapter by chapter would be a cause that itself would kind of start with the fire and then go back and peel off how these things had to do with it. Again, I thought I wanted to write narrative, and I have thought I wanted to write narrative at various points, and I always end up with a book that has a kind of narrative sensibility, but an analytical push to it. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's just what I do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know, mm-hmm. I know I did it in the book I wrote about Atlantic City, and I did it here. So it was the decision not to write a kind of blow-by-blow narrative. That freed me up really thinking about Kleinenberg and this kind of idea of a social autopsy and each chapter as a kind of cause was mm-hmm. how I kind of came to structure the book. But I had a really great editor. His name is Carl Brumley from the New Press. And he, he had a really interesting way of talking to me about what I was writing. So I sent him the first draft of the book and he wanted me to eliminate anything that he knew about. 
huh? And it was kind of made the book leaner, right? And uh, yeah. So if he knew that story, I mean, there were kind of moments where you know I go in and talk about Michael Pollan or something about corn, and he would say, "I know this. I don't want to know it again." The other really good advice I got, if you're asking about writing, was my friend Grace Hale read the book. <laughs> she would lie to me after reading the version. It was channel your inner Hemingway. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it was, again, helpful, like, that there was enough drama there that I didn't need to add to it and to let uh-huh. the people speak and to let what happens speak and not, like, whenever I could to step back and not add anything to it. And I don't know if I did it entirely, but it was really, it was good advice. I, I felt like it was good huh. advice. And those two things really shaped the rewriting of the book. Yeah. It's interesting to hear that you say there's an analytical push to the book, but then at the same time, you're putting people's words up front and center, which you definitely do, and their stories, that those those coexist really nicely in your book. And sometimes there's a, you know, I read things that have, like my own work, (laughs) where there's a war between them. But And social autopsy is interesting, too, to me, you know, because I felt like this was sort of like a who really done it, you know, (laughs) like, who really done it? Who it was it really these owners? Well, yeah, but no, it was also like, you know, we've got to talk about Governor Hunt and Jimmy Carter and, you know, Ford and all of that stuff. So the optic on it keeps getting wider and wider, which is really, really compelling. I would say the hardest part about that, I mean, was what to do with the owners. And mm. I mean, you've read the book and people who will read the book, I mean, they're easy bad guys. Yeah. And I tried to resist that. I mean, there were things I I had to say, and I I didn't try and make them good guys. But again, I wanted them to be in the flow of history as well. And and that um, there was a lot, I thought a lot about choice, in the sense of the way in which kind of neoliberalism venerates choice, and how this was a place where choice was, was an illusion. Not only were people trapped in the factory, they were trapped in this system. And so I wanted them at least in part, like in a large part, to be trapped in this system as well. But, you know, it's hard to resist the urge every once in a while to like, of outrage. <laughs> They're pretty awful. Yeah. But, but, you know, what allows people to be, what allows people to be their most awful selves and that that comes through really clearly in there that this isn't just, you know, blaming them or they're, they're the rogue owners, you know, outside of the flow. So uh, that definitely comes through. Brian, I remember even when this happened, there were a lot of connections between this fire with the locked doors, the workers couldn't get out, to that very famous fire, the Triangle Fire back in 1911, which I was studying as part of my dissertation research, actually, where the doors also were locked and preventing people from being able to escape the fire. And I wonder if you could talk about those two fires, because they seem like kind of bookends of an era that you're you're trying to discover illuminate yeah i actually end the book with the triangle fire and i end it there because of what didn't happen the triangle fire really did change the conversation in new york and then in the rest of the country and the fire in hamlet briefly changed the conversation in north carolina and didn't really change the conversation around the rest of the country And to me, that speaks ultimately to Cheap's probably greatest power, and that is to make its alternatives hard to see, hard to articulate, and hard to find. And I just was kind of stunned by that. And so in part, I think that 
this is a story of a moment, the largest industrial accident in North Carolina history that doesn't produce kind of startling historical change. Very poignant. And hopefully your book will be part of a growing wave of people breaking that silence. That'd be great. Thanks. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Brian. I, I hope everybody will read your book. Thank you. And they need to leave more than an hour and a half for it. <laughs> Appreciate it. All right. Okay. That was Nan Instad, professor of history at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, speaking with Bryant Simon, professor of history at Temple University. He is the author of Boardwalk of Dreams, Everything But Coffee, and most recently, The Hamlet Fire, available now from the New Press. You've been listening to Edge Effects, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment, and the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Today's episode was produced by Brian Hamilton, Stefa Veledetsky, and me, Sarah Thomas. A special thanks to Chris Artis for helping coordinate this interview, and to Martin Halpern and Helen Webb for providing an impromptu studio. The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. We're back soon with episodes featuring anthropologist Marisol de la Cadena, historians Greg Cushman and Richard White, and sociologist Jason Moore. You can get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to the EdgeFX podcast and Apple Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review. That really helps us connect with new listeners. You can also follow us on Twitter at EdgeFXMAG. And, as always, keep up with the steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at edgefx.net.